This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, A Brief History with Christine Morgan. Hi, I'm historian Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we continue with the final part of Henry VIII's reign and take a look at the way the city of London evolved religiously, economically, and in matters of caring for children and the poor during the reign of Edward VI. Though Edward's reign is short, the city forges ahead at full steam. All stories are taken from the book London in the Time of Tudors by Sir Walter Besant. In the last year of Henry's reign, 1546, he bestowed an endowment of 500 marks a year on the city poorhouses on condition that the city itself raised just as much. He also gave the city, only a few days before his death, the Hospital of St. Bartholomew to be called the House of the Poor, the House of the Grey Friars, and the House or Hospital of Bethlehem. Henry died on the 28th of January, 1547, at his palace of Whitehall. The death of Henry left the city in a condition of the greatest confusion and disorder. The streets were full of returned soldiers and of idle vagabonds who follow the army. In holes and corners there were lurking unfrocked friars and people turned out of their work in the religious houses. There were no hospitals for the sick, none for the blind, none for the insane. If these were the fruits of the king's supremacy, then, men whispered to each other, it were better to return to the old superstitions. The city presents few points of interest during the reign of Edward VI which do not belong to the national history. The progress of the Reformation is the subject which more especially belongs to and interests the world in this young king's short reign. There can be no doubt whatever that just as in the reign of Richard II, the city was saturated with lollardry, so in the last years of Henry VIII. It was filled with new ideas. The connection with the Pope was severed. The religious orders clean-swept away, the reading of the Bible rapidly spreading, the teaching and example of men like Cranmer, Latimer, Rogers, Ridley, Hooper, and others, the derision poured upon the old things such as pilgrimages, image worship, repeated services, and monasticism, the popular attack on the religious by such writers as Fish in The Supplication of Beggars and Barnaby Googe in his Popish Kingdom. The lectures and sermons carefully composed with the design of overthrowing and casting contempt upon the old faith. The natural instinct of men to see in new ideas a certain remedy for old ills. These things made it inevitable that the new thoughts would spread and take root. We hear no more, for instance, of the mayor disarming men who had been monks and friars. The new ideas, again, appealed to the nobler and more generous part of humanity. To stand erect before the Creator without the intervention of a priest, no longer to be called upon to believe that which the Bible would not allow to be believed. The introduction of reason into the domain of doctrine. The abandonment of childish pilgrimages to the tombs of fallible and sinful mortals. 
The abolition of the doctrine that pardons indulgences, heaven itself can be bought with money, no longer to believe that fasting and the observance of days may avail to salvation. These things caught hold of men's minds and ran rapidly from class to class. And then there was the reading of the Bible for themselves by the folk who could do no more than read. There are no means of deciding how far the Old English version had been read and passed from hand to hand. In the reign of Edward VI, we see the first fruits of these new ideas. Already, however, there were signs of change other than those ordered and authorized by the most autocratic of sovereigns. The mayor abolished the service of the boy bishop at St. Paul's. Sober citizens were hauled before the courts and charged with blaspheming the Mass. Men rose in their places and made a noise in church during celebration. One, a boy, threw his cap at the host during the time of elevation. Quote, at this time was much speaking, again the sacrament. Some called it Jack of the Box with diverse other shameful names, end quote. Thus, the new reign began. It was a time of great uncertainty and trouble in religious matters. We see the citizens, ignorant of Greek, disputing over the interpretation of a text, over the conditions of salvation, over matters too high for them. One grows hot and says things that not ought be said. The informer in the crowd, as there is always an informer, steals away and lays information. Then the hasty citizen is lucky if he gets off with a fine. They whisper thus and thus concerning the intentions of the protector, the opinions of the archbishop. It is rumored that the new bishop of this or that will not be consecrated in his robes. It is rumored that there will be more changes in the articles of religion. It is rumored that there will be a vast rising of the ejected priests and the starving friars. It's rumored that they have already risen in the East and in the West. The air is full of rumors. But trade is also very bad. There is no money anywhere. The coinage is debased. A shilling is worth no more than sixpence. A penny is a halfpenny, and the price of provisions is certainly double what it was. It is a strange and perplexed time. There were other events connected with the city besides these constant alarms about the change of faith. Traitors were executed, notably the two Seymours. Rebels were drawn, hanged, and quartered, notably the four captains of the Cornish Rising. The sweating sickness appeared again in 1550 and lasted for six months, carrying off men only and sparing women and children. The cloister of St. Paul's was destroyed and carried away. There were risings in Cornwall, Norfolk, and Yorkshire. The woman Joan of Kent was burned at Smithfield for heresy. Then happened the famous murder of Arden of Faversham, for which his wife, his maid, and one of the murderers were all burned. Three men and one woman hanged. A Dutchman named George of Paris was burned for heresy at Smithfield. However, in one respect, the civic history of this reign is very fine. 
The citizens grappled manfully with the question of the poor and the sick. We've seen how Henry gave them Grey Friars, Bartholomews, and Bethlehem. In aid of the former, they levied on the city a tax, and the memory of the old religious fraternities lingered still. We find groups founding brotherhoods for relief of the poor. Sir John Gresham, then mayor, and most of the aldermen belonged to this group. But this was not all. They obtained by purchase at the cost of £2,500 the Hospital of St. Thomas in Southwark. After the poor, the children. Greyfriars House was taken in hand and altered to convert it into a school. In a few months, 400 children were admitted. This was the work of Sir Richard Dobbs as mayor. When Ridley was lying in prison shortly before his death, he wrote to Dobbs in these words, quote, O Dobbs, Dobbs, alderman and knight, thou in thy year didst win my heart forevermore for that honorable act, that most blessed work of God, of the erection and setting up of Christ's holy hospitals and truly religious houses, which by thee and through thee were begun. End quote. After the sick and the children come those who cannot work and those who will not work. In 1553, the young king consented to give his disused palace of Bridewell for the purpose of turning it into a workhouse or hospital for those who could work no longer and a house of correction for those who would not work. The king also gave 700 marks and all the beds and bedding of the Palace of Savoy. The very last act of Edward VI was a charter of incorporation, appointing the mayor, aldermen, and governors of these royal hospitals in the city. In the first year of Edward, the House of Commons passed an act which showed that the old spirit of independence and the desire to form unions were not dead among the craftsmen of London. They enacted, quote, that if any artificers, workmen, or laborers do conspire, covenant, or promise together, that they shall not make or do their work but at a certain price or rate, that they shall not enterprise nor take upon them to finish that work which another hath begun, or shall do but a certain work in a day, or shall not work but at certain hours or times, that then every person so conspiring, covenanting, or offending, being thereof convicted by witnesses, confession, or otherwise, shall forfeit for the first offense ten pounds or twenty days imprisonment, for the second offense twenty pounds or pillory, and for the third offense forty pounds or to sit on the pillory and to have one ear cut off, besides being rendered infamous and incapable of ever giving evidence upon oath. End quote. The act is explained to apply basically to butchers, bakers, brewers, cooks, etc., in a word, to those who provided the daily necessaries of life. The deposition and trial of the protector are matters of national history. The part taken by the city is not generally recorded by historians. It's told by Maitland, quote, The Earl of Warwick, and diverse lords of the Privy Council, being highly dissatisfied with the administration of Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, the Protector, 
withdrew from court, associated, and armed themselves and domestics, and secured the Tower of London by stratagem of the Lord Treasurers, without the effusion of blood. And, having removed the governor, substituted one of their friends to succeed him. Having luckily succeeded in their first attempt, Warwick removed into the city and lodged at the house of John York, one of the sheriffs of London. Upon advice of these proceedings at London, the protector was so greatly intimidated that he instantly removed from with the king at Hampton Court and went to Windsor and began strongly to fortify the castle. In the interim, the lords at London had a conference with the Lord Mayor and Aldermen, whom they earnestly importuned to provide a power sufficient for the defense of the city. With that assented to, the several companies were ordered alternately to mount guard to be ready to oppose all attempts that might be made against them. They likewise desired a supply of 500 men to enable them to bring the protector to justice, to which answer was returned that nothing could be done in that affair without consulting the common council to which end the Lord Mayor summoned all the members thereof to assemble the next day in Guildhall. In the meantime, the Lords convened in the Mayor's house, where after having drawn up a trifling charge against the Protector, they caused it to be proclaimed in diverse parts of the city, after which they conferred with the Mayor and Aldermen in the Council Chamber before they met the Commons, and, Having come to several resolutions, the mayor and aldermen repaired to the common council, where in a full assembly they produced a letter from the king commanding them immediately to send him five hundred men completely armed to Windsor. However, Robert Brooke, the recorder, earnestly exhorted them rather to supply the lords with that number, by whose assistance they would be enabled to call the protector to account and thereby redress the grievances of an injured nation. Without this, the city was not only in danger of being ruined, but likewise the whole kingdom to become a prey to his insatiable avarice. This speech, instead of having the desired effect, occasioned a profound silence, which greatly amazed the orator. He resumed his discourse and seriously pressed them for an answer, whereupon George Stadlow, a prudent and judicious citizen, rose up and spoke as followeth, quote, I remember, in a story written in Fabian's Chronicle, of the war between the king and his barons, which was in the time of King Henry III, and the same time the barons, as our lords do now, demanded aid of the mayor and the city of London, and that in a rightful cause for the commonwealth, which was for the execution of diverse and good laws, whereunto the king before had given his consent, and after would not suffer them to take place. The city did aid the lords, and it came to an open battle, wherein the lords prevailed and took the king and his son prisoners, and upon certain conditions the lords restored again the king and his sons to their liberties." Among other conditions, this was one, that the king should not only grant his pardons to the lords, but also to the citizens of London. 
This grant was given, yea, and the same was ratified, also by an act of Parliament. But what followed of it? Was it forgotten? No, surely, nor forgiven during the king's life. The liberties of the city were taken away, strangers appointed to be our heads and governors, the citizens given away body and goods, and from one persecution to another were most miserably afflicted. Such it is to enter into the wrath of a prince. Wherefore, forasmuch as this aid is required of the king's majesty, whose voice we ought to hearken unto, for he is our high shepherd, rather than unto the Lord's, And yet I would not with the lords to be clearly shaken off, but that they with us, and we with them, may join in suit, and make our most humble petition to the king's majesty, that it would please his highness to hear such complaint against the government of the Lord Protector, as may be justly alleged and proved, and I no doubt this matter will be pacified." that neither shall the king nor yet the lords have cause to seek for further aid, neither we to offend any of them. End quote. It would seem that the nobles had resumed the old custom of having a great train of followers, for at the departure of Mary Queen of Scots from London, where she had been entertained for four days, the Duke of Northumberland attended her with a hundred mounted men, of whom... Forty were dressed in black velvet, with velvet hats and feathers and gold chains about their necks. The Earl of Pembroke was there with a hundred and twenty men, also in hats and feathers, and the Lord Treasurer had a hundred gentlemen and yeomen. The last glimpse which London had of the young King Edward was when Sir Hugh Willoughby sailed down the river on that voyage, which was to discover a northeastern passage through the ice and snow of North Siberia. The ships were dressed with streamers, trumpeters stood in the bows, guns were fired for a farewell salute as they passed Greenwich Palace, and the dying prince was brought out for one more look upon the glory of his realm in the courage and enterprise of his subjects. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to this episode of A Brave History, and I hope that this week you'll spend a little time looking through the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and exploring some of the other podcast and interview options that my fabulous co-hosts also provide. Tudor's Dynasty is one of the best places to find great podcasts by researchers and historians who have a love of history just like you. I hope you'll tune in to our next episode where we finally dive into the tumultuous reign of Mary I of England. Until then, I'm Christine Morgan, and I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.